Find your way over to Matthew chapter 12, either on your device or in your Bible. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 38 through 50, that's our text. The topic, Jesus tells Israel's leaders that they will get no further sign from him until his resurrection from the dead. The title of our message, Signing Off. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we've had an opportunity to worship you and we thank you so much for that. It's a time to rest in your presence, Lord, and realize how worthy you are to be praised. And now, Lord, we thank you for your word. You've promised that it will accomplish a purpose as it's read and as it's taught to us by the Holy Spirit who's here in this place and in the hearts of those that know you. And Lord, we especially pray for those who may be here this morning that are not yet saved, they're not Christians, they haven't been born again, born spiritually. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come as is his uh, duty and, and desire so that they would come to know this wonderful saving grace of Jesus Christ. We thank and we praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. I'm sure you're aware of the sign language snafu at Nelson Mandela's funeral. You remember that a couple of weeks ago? Did you follow the story to its conclusion? Did you hear the reason the interpreter gave that he was signing gibberish? Following the event, he said that he had, and I quote, a history of violent schizophrenic episodes and may have hallucinated that angels were flying into the stadium. So I kind of feel sorry for the guy now. I mean, I think he did a great job considering that he was a schizophrenic seeing angels. Our text today in the Gospel of Matthew involves a problem with signs. In this case, never turn away. In this case, the signs were perfectly clear, but the crowd was acting like they did not understand them. The Jewish scriptures indicated that when their Messiah came, the miracles he performed would be signs to them by which they would recognize him. He would do things like heal lepers, exorcise demons, give hearing to the deaf and sight to the blind. He would raise the dead. Jesus had done all that and more. Nevertheless, the religious leaders had the audacity to say to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Asking for a further sign when Jesus had given them so many was evidence of a settled unbelief. Their insincere request was a game changer. Jesus told them he would give them a sign, but when you understand what it was, you see it would be too late for them to stop the national consequences of their unbelief. Their unbelief would put on hold God's program of establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth that had been promised to the physical descendants of Abraham. Meanwhile, Jesus would build a new spiritual family by calling out to whosoever would believe, Gentiles as well as Jews. We will see how all this unfolded as we finish up chapter 12, and as we do, we'll see ourselves in relation to the sign Jesus spoke of, which was his resurrection from the dead on the third day. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the third day is all the sign you need, and number two, every day Jesus is all the Savior you need. Let's take a look, first of all, beginning in verse 38 at the third day. Now, our text is a significant turning point, and not just for the nation of Israel, but for the entire world. It sets the stage for the age in which we live, the church age, 
the time that's in between the first and the second comings of Jesus. And so verse 38 says, then some of the Pharisees and uh, scribes answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Comedian Seth Meyers announced as the new host of TV's Late Night developed a recurring skit in which he mentions something outrageous from the news and then he says, really? How many of you are familiar with that? I just want to know who watches television. There you go. This verse would make a great really segment. Pharisees, after Jesus healed lepers, cast out legions of demons, made the deaf hear and the blind see, you wanted to see a sign? Really? I mean, it's outrageous when you think about it. Verse 39, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. If there was any doubt about their sincerity in asking to see a sign, Jesus dispels it by labeling them evil and adulterous. To emphasize how tragic unfaithfulness to God was and is, it's compared to adultery. It was spiritual adultery. And since it was against God and his pure love, it was particularly bad, so it was further labeled as evil. Now notice in passing too that Jesus referred to Jonah and the incident with him being swallowed by the great fish as a true story. It resolves once and for all any questions about whether or not it really happened. Of course it did, because Jesus said it did. What was the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, in verse 40 it says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the next verse, Jesus describes the results of Jonah emerging from the great fish after three days. The sign of Jonah was his resuscitation after three days and three nights, which enabled him to complete his mission. Now, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the great fish and then resuscitated, so Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, then resurrected from the dead. Jesus knew he was going to the cross. It did not surprise him. He knew he was born to die as the substitute for every human being. By his death and resurrection, he would save us from our sins. A quick word about three days and three nights. Although a Wednesday crucifixion has been suggested by some scholars, we believe Jesus was crucified on Friday and then raised on Sunday. He was in the tomb for a portion of three days. It's most accurate to say he rose on the third day. Now the Jews reckoned a portion of a day as a day. If you read commentaries, you find that there's all kinds of arguing about that, whether they really did or really didn't. It shouldn't surprise us because we do the same thing. When you make a hotel reservation for three days and two nights, you don't really spend 72 hours in the room. You spend a portion of three days, not three days. And so this is the the same thing that we see here. For the Jews, the description three days and three nights could be as short a period as 26 hours or as long a period as 72 hours. And so Jesus crucified on Friday, rose from the dead early Sunday morning uh, on the third day. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The full impact of this statement 
is lost on us since we are not ethnic Jews for the most part. You'll recall that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because he did not want God to save them. Jonah suspected that if he went and preached the gospel to the Ninevites, they would get saved. And so he was on his way to Spain, as far away from Nineveh as he could get when he was thrown overboard and the great fish swallowed him. Jewish attitudes towards Gentiles had not changed all that much by the first century. For Jesus to indicate that the gospel was going to go outside of Israel to Gentiles who would be saved was an incredible statement. To further predict that the men of Nineveh were saved while the Jews hearing Jesus were lost and would be condemned and that the Ninevites would be among those sitting in judgment over them, well, that was heavy indeed. Jesus was greater than Jonah in every way. One thing I want to concentrate on is his greater compassion. Jonah was forced by God to complete his mission of taking the gospel to people he hated and after he preached the minimum message, he waited outside the city still hoping that God would rain fire down on them. Jesus, moved with compassion, willingly left heaven and came to earth, died voluntarily to save people who were the enemies of God. Where is God when it hurts? You see him on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, rising from the dead to give you victory over sin and suffering. It's tremendous. Verse 42, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Queen of the south, queen of Sheba, who traveled about a thousand miles to visit King Solomon just to hear his wisdom. Solomon was a son of David, but Jesus was the greater son of David. He was the Messiah. The Jews would not come to him even though he had traveled so much farther than a thousand miles to share the ultimate wisdom of God's plan to save sinners. Once again, we see here a Gentile received the gospel through Solomon while the Jews were rejecting it through Jesus Christ. These examples are setting us up for the coming chapters in Matthew in which we will see the shift in God's program on the earth between the two comings of Jesus. If you're a Jew reading the Gospel of Matthew, this is a pivotal chapter because it is introducing a change in how God is dealing with Israel. Israel's going to reject their king and his kingdom. That's gonna be put on hold. He'll have to come back a second time to establish the kingdom. There's gonna be an in-between time, a mystery revealed in the New Testament, and that time is the church of Jesus Christ, the church age in which we live. Now, Jesus followed with this illustration in verse 43. He said, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Now, there may be insights here into the psychology of demons, but that's not the point of the illustration. Demons may feel uncomfortable in dry places and be unable to rest wandering through them, but that doesn't mean we'd all be better off living in Arizona. So don't make any judgments based on this. This is an illustration, not a discourse on demons. Jesus is illustrating the state of Israel as a nation. He's talking to his generation. 
Earlier in this same chapter, he claimed to be able to bind the strong man and plunder his goods and take over his house. The strong man we saw was Satan and by extension, all of his nefarious, dry place-hating demons. Jesus had, in effect, cleaned house in Israel. That's a kind of a vernacular way of saying, if we looked at Jesus and we wanted to describe what he had been doing, he said, man, this guy is cleaning house. He's getting everything ready for the kingdom of God. The nation was empty of demons in the sense that Jesus defeated them. He was binding the strong man. The house was ready to be occupied by the Lord, by the Messiah. He was ready to establish his reign of righteousness on the earth with Jerusalem as his headquarters, but the leaders of the nation would reject Jesus. He wasn't welcomed into his own house. They would hand him over to Rome to be crucified. He would rise from the dead, but instead of setting up the kingdom, he would ascend into heaven to await his second coming. The word for empty, describing the house in the story, can be translated unoccupied. When the nation of Israel said no to Jesus, it left the house he would have established unoccupied. It was a limited time offer, this offer to establish the kingdom. And that's why you read at the end of the book of Acts, Paul the apostle says to the Jewish leaders, therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. In other words, your Messiah came and you rejected him and so now the message is going out beyond the borders of Israel to the whole world. In other passages, we're told that Israel's kingdom is delayed until the fullness of the Gentiles which is the full preaching of the gospel in this age. Now in the void left after the nation refused their king and his kingdom, the devil remained unbound and in one sense he continues to occupy the house and he's a worse occupant than ever. Some of you may have had rental houses. You ever, every now and then you get a renter from hell, right? Only he, not paying rent, he's like a, only the devil's even worse. He's not even a renter, he's a squatter. He's living where he has no business living and he's ruling there as the God of this age. Fewer than 40 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, 70 AD, Titus and the Roman legion sacked and burned Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. The Jews were scattered all over the earth and persecuted for the next almost 2,000 years before the miracle of them returning to their ancient homeland in 1948. Not just Israel, but the whole world became a much worse place than ever as Satan, who could have been bound, instead continues to roam about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign. Jesus would give them a sign. His death and burial and resurrection was that sign. It would, however, be too late to avoid the national consequences that would come upon Israel for having rejected their Messiah in the face of overwhelming signs of who he was. Pause for just a minute and realize something precious in light of what we're talking about. Everyone after Jesus rose from the dead, everyone born after Jesus rose from the dead is able to see that great sign. It is the physical, historic evidence and proof that Jesus is who he says he is and that he finished what he was sent to do. The resurrection of Jesus Christ physically and bodily from the tomb and his ascension to heaven is a verifiable, actual, historic fact. There's been no theory ever that can disprove it. 
And there is much evidence, overwhelming evidence, that it is true. And, and so really, the resurrection from the dead is all the evidence that you need. People still do this today. I'm not saying they're evil and wicked the way that the Pharisees were, but you'll talk to them about Jesus and they say, well, you know, if I could see something, if, if, you know, if God did a miracle here, if I could see something like that. And the truth is, Jesus has risen from the dead and he's alive right now. And then we could add to that, if you wanted to, fulfilled Bible prophecy, you realize 75% of the Bible's prophecies are already fulfilled literally word for word. And then if you're sharing with somebody, though you're not perfect, though you're still growing, your changed life is a testimony. There is overwhelming proof, evidence, and signs that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and did what he said he was going to do. And so when a person rejects Christ, they're rejecting actual evidence, not just some theory or some uh, mythology. They're, they're acting, uh, they're, they're, they're not being honest. They're not really looking at the evidence that demands a verdict. I think it was Christian recording artist Don Francisco who wrote a song, uh, He's Alive. Afterwards, I was corrected and saying that it was made famous by Dolly Parton. Not a big Dolly Parton listener. Not saying I'm not a fan, but I don't regularly listen to Dolly Parton. I don't think that makes me a terrible person. But anyway, some of you are familiar with that song, He's Alive? It's a great song. He's alive, he's alive, he's alive and I'm forgiven. Heaven's gates have opened wide. And I'm pretty sure, I was gonna go back and listen to it, but I think it's about Peter and his denials of Christ. And it's one of those songs that builds up, you know, it starts kind of gradually and then it gets into a big crescendo. And he realizes that he's alive and I can be forgiven my sins and he's shouting at the end. And that's, that's the Christian message in a nutshell. Somebody says, what do you believe? He's alive and I'm forgiven and heaven's gates are opened wide. What's your story? And that's the truth. Now, non-believers have their objections to the gospel. They have their questions, but at the end of the day, we have the ultimate proof. The third day is all the sign you need to know that Jesus is the God-man, the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Now, Wrapping up the chapter, every day, Jesus is all the savior you need. Chapter 12 closes with an incident in which Jesus might be seen to be disrespecting his mother and his brothers, but he wasn't. He simply took advantage of their arrival to finish his thoughts about this new age that was beginning in which the kingdom on earth was being delayed. It wouldn't be so much about the physical descendants of Abraham by birth, not about your physical family, as it would be about the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles, who experience the new birth and are the family of believers. And so verse 46, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Another gospel, I believe it's the gospel of Mark, tells us that Jesus' earthly family thought he was overstressed. It's been suggested that the Pharisees sent for them and exaggerated the situations. Hey, you gotta come quickly. Jesus is losing his mind. You guys have to do something. If you were saved later in life and had family members who are non-believers, not uncommon for them to think you've gone too far into this Jesus thing, is it? That you've become a Jesus freak. I've told you many times, but it's the best illustration I have. My dad, when I became a Christian, he said, he said son, 
you read the Bible too much, you go crazy. As if it was a fact of life. It's something that everyone knows that he had withheld from me up to that point because I didn't really need it because he didn't see me reading the Bible. But once, once I started reading the Bible, he said, son, I need you to take into a higher knowledge here and let you know that in a few minutes, you're going to go crazy. And so, now I don't want to get distracted from the main message, but let me say a word about Jesus' mother and brothers. There's a false teaching that Mary remained a virgin after Jesus was born. It's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. And there's a companion teaching just as false that Mary was herself conceived immaculately in her mother's womb, that she was also virgin born. If that's the case, you need to answer the question, who are Jesus's brothers? Well, two possibilities have been suggested by those who worship Mary. The first is that they were the sons of Joseph from a previous marriage. That cannot be true. And here's why. In order for Jesus to be the Messiah, he has to be the firstborn son of Joseph because that's the son who was in line of the Messiah. So there cannot be any sons born to Joseph prior to uh, the uh, virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So that's a bad theory altogether. Now the second possibility is that the word for brothers simply means relatives and that these guys could be Jesus's cousins. I have to say that that is possible, but it's highly unlikely. While the word can refer to other relatives like cousins, its normal and literal meaning is a physical brother. There was a perfectly good Greek word for cousin, and it was not used by Matthew. And further, just logically, think about this. If they were Jesus' cousins, why are they always hanging around with Mary? Are your cousins always with you? Go home. You have your own mother. And so there, it's always Mary and, his, and Jesus, his mother and brothers. Oh, really, they're his cousins. They lived with her. No, that's not true. There's nothing in the context of his mother and brothers coming to see him that even hints they were anyone other than his literal blood-related half-brothers. The simple, obvious explanation is that after Jesus was born, here's the shock, Joseph and Mary had other children. I heard you gasp. She was not immaculately conceived and she did not remain a virgin. More important to notice, set that aside for a minute, notice this. Mary had no special access to Jesus. In the words that follow, we'll see that Jesus doesn't stop what he's doing to listen to her. They say, hey, your mom's here. Who's my mom? People who do my will, that's my mom. He didn't stop and say, oh, okay. Mom, what do you want? And so if you're trying to get to Jesus through Mary, it's a dead end. You're not gonna make it. Now, verse 48, but he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples. I made the mistake first service of just doing one side. Uh, He stretched out his hand toward his disciples. Actually, I'm seeing angels flying in the room, but anyway. (laughs) Here are my mother and my brothers. Now, this is not disrespectful. It's powerful. It's a powerful illustration of the shift in God's dealings with Israel, with Gentiles, and with the gospel. If you followed everything that we've been talking about, Jesus says, hey, thank God, this is the greatest illustration possible. He says, yeah, they are my physical family, but now I'm talking about my spiritual family. 
I'm not talking about Israel and the physical descendants of Abraham. I'm talking about anyone, whosoever will, as a spiritual descendant. Jesus came to his own. He came to the Jews. They rejected him. The kingdom would have to wait. In the meantime, the gospel would go out beyond Israel to the whole world. Jesus would establish a spiritual family based on faith in him that knows no racial or ethnic distinctions. It will be distinct from Israel. God's still dealing with Israel as a nation, but he's also dealing with this new spiritual family, the church, and that's what Jesus will call it in chapter 16. He says, I will build my church. Verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. This doesn't mean you earn or that you maintain a spot in the spiritual family by working hard to do God's will. You enter the family by believing in Jesus. In the Gospel of John, it says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. You know, sometimes people, they, they, um, they ask them to come to church, for example, and they say, well, I need to get my life together before I start coming to church. I need to quit this or start this or whatever. And they think they have to do certain work ahead of time, kind of preparatory work, getting ready to come to church and to come to Christ. And John, in his gospel, Jesus said, hey, the work of God is for you to just believe in Jesus Christ. And then what? You come and he does the work in you and through you. Once you're a believer, once you've been born again, once you're born from above, once you're born spiritually, you're enabled by God, the Holy Spirit, to do God's will. In context, this is the perfect close to the events of this chapter. Ties it all up. Rejected by the nation, Jesus would return to heaven to await his second coming. In the meantime, the gospel would go out to whosoever will believe and whoever does believe will be indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, to be enabled to do the will of God. If you happen to be a Jew by physical descent from Abraham, every day Jesus is all the savior you need. You shouldn't be looking for your Messiah anywhere else because he's already come and he's coming again. You get saved just like Gentiles get saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Tragically, Israel as a nation will continue to reject Jesus into the great tribulation. They will welcome and receive instead a political and military leader who will turn out to be the Antichrist, who will turn out to be their nemesis. In the end, the Bible says all Israel will be saved. A remnant will survive the great tribulation. They will look upon Jesus. They will receive him as their Messiah. As he returns to earth, he will establish the kingdom that was promised. In the meantime, in between time, we ain't got fun. By that, I mean to highlight once again that we live in a war zone, a spiritual war zone. Uh, Pastor Don McClure, who we like, I was reading his uh, Facebook this morning, he's quoted as saying, uh, we think we're on vacation when we're living in a war zone. So we have to have a war zone mentality, not a vacation mentality. The strong man is not bound, nor are his demon followers. The unoccupied house that is our world has a squatter living in it, ruling over it. Now, in this conflict, which is serious, we are nevertheless described as more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let me read a Bible passage in which our status as more than conquerors is revealed. Listen for the kind of warfare that is coming upon us. Remember that 
we are more than conquerors. It's Paul the Apostle, it's the end of the book, uh, uh, or chapter eight of Romans, where he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That means that's the main strategy, or a main strategy at least, is to separate you from the love of Christ. Now, he can't quit loving you, but you can doubt his love for you. And so who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? It's written, for your sake we are killed all day long, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, these things that I listed, or that are listed in Romans 8, can and do occur, and yet they cannot in any way alter Jesus Christ's love for you. Some of you are experiencing one or multiple things like this right now in your life, and yet in them you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. Absolute confidence in his great love is how you conquer. Charles Spurgeon spoke of this confidence He spoke of the confidence of great men and women of God in the past. He said this, they did not speak of Christ's love as though it were a myth to be respected or a tradition to be reverenced. They viewed it as a blessed reality. They cast their whole confidence upon it, being persuaded that it would bear them up as upon eagles' wings and carry them all their days, resting assured that it would be to them a foundation of rock against which the waves might beat and the winds blow, but their soul's habitation would stand securely founded upon it. Every day with Jesus, you are more than conquerors, so much more. Let's think of some of the ways you're more than a conqueror. For one thing, you have his sweet fellowship 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He will never, not ever leave you or forsake you, the Bible says. For another thing, he has prepared good works for you that you would discover them as you follow him. So your life has purpose, it has meaning. For another thing, he's given you his promise of the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to enable you to obey God, to say yes to God and no to sin. For another thing, Jesus has promised you that he will complete the work he has begun. Do you have any uncompleted projects, things you want to get back to? You do. And, or you finish something and you think, that's lame. It didn't turn out the way you thought. Jesus is gonna complete the work he's begun in you and that work is to perfect you and to conform you into his own image. The Bible says he will present you faultless before the throne of grace. For another thing, Jesus is preparing for you a glorious entrance into heaven where he's been building you a custom home. We could go on and on. I think you get the idea. You could start listing all the mores, you know, how much more that we have as Christians than we had before we were saved. A good slogan for us as the Lord's army would be more than conquerors. Look any of the troubles and afflictions listed in this passage in the face and say, I am more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loves me. Let's pray.